tools such as facial recognition cameras and social media monitoring software, artificial intelligence is offering governments new ways to keep tabs on people's conversations, movements, and activities. Advocates warn that in the absence of clear-cut rules, these new capabilities could erode the rule of law in some settings and deepen authoritarian control in others. Today, we'll be taking a closer look at the political and commercial dynamics that are helping new surveillance tools to spread under the radar and asking what this reveals about the challenge of setting democratic rules for emerging technologies. I'm Chris Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm Beth Curley, Program Officer at NED. You're listening to Power 3.0, a podcast bridging the gap between ideas and practice on global challenges to democracy. We talk with civic activists, experts, and thinkers from around the world about complex challenges, such as defending against disinformation or fighting corruption and kleptocracy, as well as challenges on the horizon, such as emerging technologies and their implications for democracy. We're joined today by Article 19's Vidushi Marta, a lawyer and researcher focusing on the human rights impacts of AI technologies. Among many other publications, she is co-author of Article 19's 2021 report on emotion recognition technology in China. She also examines law enforcement uses of emerging technologies as an affiliate researcher at Carnegie India. Vidushi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So a quick first question to kick us off. As you know, the International Forum recently released a report in which Steve Feldstein at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace identified 97 governments using AI surveillance, more than half of them democracies. But as case studies from Serbia's Share Foundation and Argentina's Asociación por los Derechos Civiles showed, there can be a troubling lack of transparency and public debate around the use of AI-powered surveillance systems. You've looked at some of the interactions between governments and companies around AI surveillance purchases. Could you maybe say a few words about patterns you've seen that might shed light on why it so often seems that these tools are spreading so quickly that the public only becomes aware of them after they're already deployed? Yeah, definitely. I think there are many reasons as to why this is becoming more of the norm than the exception. And the first and perhaps the most important is that when governments think of using technical solutions to problems of national security and of public safety, this misplaced idea that you know national security is such an exceptional use case that we have to let go of a lot of safeguards that are in place to check governmental power. And there's also this very close association with the expectation of secrecy. And usually, I think with surveillance tools, what happens is that we usually find out about them in the newspaper when they're already being trialed, when ideally we should be involved in that conversation way earlier, you know, when the first conversation about conceptualizing the problem was even had. Which leads me to the second reason I think that this is a trend, which is that the demand for surveillance technologies isn't necessarily thought up independently in government offices. It's not something that is, you know, kind of drawn out by officials and government. More often than not, it's the product of a lot of marketing meetings between companies and governments. So from the outside, where, you know, I think as civil society, as academics, and even just citizens within a society, we think of surveillance tools as being the subject of kind of like a deliberative exercise by which we want to make our societies better. But more often than not, they're, you know, a one-is-to-one conversation between companies and governments where companies are selling a product that governments then become the customer of. 
And I think companies also tend to provide these technologies for free sometimes, either as pilots or as trials. And what happens with that is that usually, you know, procurement guidelines and procurement kind of safeguards aren't triggered because there's no exchange of money, which kind of allows for a very, very slippery slope by which technologies make their way into societies without the necessary kind of deliberation that involves civil society, that involves people that aren't from the company selling the technology or from the governments that happen to be using them. So, Vidushi, in your view, why does this spread of new surveillance tools matter for the health of democracy? In our report, Steve Feldstein argues that the new surveillance capabilities could, quote, subvert expectations of privacy, facilitate political persecution or group discrimination, and erode the freedoms of expression and association. What's your sense of examples of AI surveillance tools that are being used in ways that actually threaten people's ability to exercise their democratic rights? Yeah, I mean, I could I could talk about this for an hour, but I'm going to think about a few really striking examples and examples of technologies that we see being used across the world. The first one that comes to mind is, of course, facial recognition systems. I think in Steve's paper, the argument about subverting expectations of privacy and facilitating political persecution are right on the money, quite literally. You know, facial recognition is being used to monitor protests, even when people are exercising constitutionally protected rights. Um, In 2019, the Delhi police in India used facial recognition to identify habitual protesters. That's the term that was used, at least in the newspaper clippings. Um, But the protesters were, you know, very peaceful. They were exercising a constitutional right, but were also, you know, disadvantaged because of the use of these technologies. Facial recognition is being used in countries, not it's not just in India, of course, it's it's pretty much everywhere. And usually we see that not only is the technology itself just in its technical formulation quite biased and inaccurate, particularly when it comes to recognizing people who are not white males, um, but the way in which the technology is used and the institutions that use these technologies, uh, such as law enforcement agencies, for instance, have their own legacy of discrimination, right? So there's kind of like two layers as to why and how people's ability to exercise their democratic rights are being compromised by the use of facial recognition. As Beth mentioned, you know, the whole of last year, we kind of looked at China's emotion recognition market. And that is, I think, a new technology that I suppose is dangerous to the point that I'm not sure many people even fully appreciate at this point. Um, So emotion recognition systems are essentially a biometric application that claim to be able to infer the inner emotional and mental state of a person. Um, And it's being used in ways that are extremely dangerous. It was trialed in Europe under the banner of eye-border control, where people who were looking to get into Europe, you know, in the immigration line, were being subject to emotional recognition systems to see if there were any signs of deception. And mind you, emotional recognition is also particularly dangerous because It's almost like a unilateral determination of what a person feels because there's no way to prove or disprove a particular determination made by a technology, right? So if I'm in an immigration line, for instance, and I I just happen to be stressed because I might miss my connecting flight or I found the flight very stressful, uh, but the emotional recognition system says, well, she looked very nervous and she looked like she was deceiving you on some level. There is no way for me to prove or disprove that. I could go on and, you know, talk about, say, things like predictive policing and maybe even credit lending. 
But I, I struggle actually with this idea that AI systems are used just for the purpose of surveillance, because if we zoom out a little bit, surveillance isn't the purpose, but rather the inevitable outcome of AI systems being used, whether it's being used by law enforcement agencies, or it's being used for credit scoring, or it's being used to monitor whether children in school are paying attention. The outcome is always surveillance, right? So I think when we zoom out, um, in some sense, all AI applications that are used kind of like in an open-ended way in the absence of very, very rigorous and high legal standards, they're all to some extent AI surveillance systems, right? So I just wanted to kind of point that out as a difference in how I view the problem because surveillance happens in both instances. Thanks, Vidushi. That is a fascinating point. And it certainly is a broader, I think, thing that's on many people's minds in terms of AI governance, just what you do with the vast amounts of data that all types of AI systems, especially those being used by public institutions or, for instance, in law enforcement agencies in particular, what's going to happen to that data and whether or not it will end up being used that infringe on due process rights, expectations of privacy, and kind of the preconditions for exercising the freedoms of expression and assembly. Speaking about those freedoms, I know that in some of your earlier writing that did take this broader look at AI about impacts on privacy and freedom of expression, you wrote about a quite interesting concept, which you described as an informational asymmetry between users of AI tools and the companies or other institutions that are building and deploying them. So I wonder if you might talk a bit about what you meant by this. What type of informational asymmetries particularly do you see when it comes to the spread of these uh, specific AI surveillance tools and what might be done to mitigate them? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when we said informational asymmetry, I think the asymmetry that we were trying to draw attention to is the fact that entities and you know government departments and companies know increasingly more and more about individuals, right? They know when we're awake and when we're sleeping. They know where we go during the day. They're making inferences based on these data points. Um, there are so many correlations that emerge through the process of you know, machine learning, for instance, and those correlations are treated as causations when a map of each individual is being made, right? And at the same time, individuals have increasingly, I think, been losing control over what inferences are made about them, why, when, and by whom, for many reasons, right? People are quite relaxed about what data they give away. Um, we're very far from the day where people think about data the same way they think about money. And there's so many assumptions made about people on the basis of this data that, you know, either people give away in slightly careless ways or, you know, if you're just walking down the street and your biometric information is lifted by a facial recognition camera, there's so much asymmetry in A, you even knowing that happened and B, the consequences of that biometric information then being used to make layers and layers of assumptions about you. In some instances, people can lose or gain opportunities based on these kinds of inferences. So that's kind of the difference that we see when it comes to AI systems. And the best example that I can think of is, you know, if you look at biometric identity systems, right, which are used in many countries across the world. What happens is that the government that has collected your data can now identify you without you ever having known that they've done so, right? They can make assumptions about you because, you know, you've given your biometrics once, um, they have it, it's in their database, and then they can authenticate you as and when they please, depending on the particular context of use. 
Whereas if you think of something like a smart card, right, I have to be able to give you access to my information for you to make an assertion or an assumption or make a decision about me. But that's not necessarily the case with AI systems anymore, just because there's so much information that is kind of mined through the process of machine learning and through the process of data collection and analysis, which is why I think this is kind of a new, newish challenge that we're facing. This idea of asymmetry, Vidushi, is also visible in the challenges in building rules and norms that are consistent with accountability and human rights and its application to these invasive and pervasive technologies. We see this from the local to the global multi-stakeholder institutional level. There are a number of efforts that are underway to articulate democratic norms around AI and other emerging technologies. You yourself are part of an expert group on AI at the UN Global Pulse. So as you look at this quickly evolving landscape, what do you see as the most promising and effective approaches to developing norms that will help safeguard people's rights across the many different settings where these tools are being used? I think that's a really important question. It's definitely one that I think most people grapple with on a daily basis even now. And I think the first is to not treat AI like this super fancy, you know, special technology that we have absolutely no tools to regulate with. Because if we look at existing laws, right, if we look at consumer protection laws, if we look at competition laws, if you look at constitutional laws, data protection, we have a number of tools at our disposal and a number of regulatory safeguards at our disposal to thoughtfully employ when it comes to the use of artificial intelligence systems. I think a big part of the problem is when they say AI systems are being used and there are absolutely no safeguards for them. That's very rarely true. Um, If you look at human rights, you know, at the international level or constitutional rights at national levels, If you look at that as the absolute minimum requirement below which AI systems cannot fall, then you already have, you know, the beginnings, at least, of a regulatory approach of norms that could guide how AI systems can and should develop in societies. So that would be the first thing, very briefly, to look at existing laws to make sure that we're more thoughtful about how we apply those laws to AI applications and kind of, you know, push back against this myth of AI applications just existing in societies without any pre-existing safeguards. The second, I think, would be to look at regulation not just as a responsibility of the legal community or as something that only emerges from the law. This is something that we have been saying for years at Article 19, where we work at embedding human rights considerations in technical standardization bodies, right? We need to ensure that considerations such as human rights, fundamental rights, privacy, safety, all of that is embedded not just at the time at which technologies are used, but within the fundamental design and assumptions of those technologies themselves, right? And this can be in the form of international um, standardization bodies. It can be, you know, at your local engineering meetup where you kind of decide how to build a tool. We need to apply these standards and these legal safeguards in a way that makes sense, not just to lawyers and regulators and policymakers, but also to the individuals and the communities that are actually building these technologies. This is such a critical point. I wonder, Vidushi, if you could say a word about what you've discovered to be the most tricky obstacles to embedding human rights norms or human rights considerations into the design phase, for example, of this technology. It's such a sensible suggestion, but it seems it's been a vexing thing to actually happen in practice. 
Yeah, and I think there are a number of obstacles at varying levels of difficulty. I think one of the more apparent obstacles that we found very early on is that there is a lack of shared language when we talk about AI systems and the dangers they pose. And the example that I always love to give is that I witnessed this fascinating hour-long conversation between a computer scientist who insisted that the purpose of an AI system was to discriminate. And this computer scientist was talking to a lawyer who said, well, AI systems absolutely cannot be discriminatory, otherwise we can't use them in societies. But of course, you know, like zooming back a little bit, they were talking about two completely different things, right? An AI system is only useful from a computer scientist's point of view if it is able to discriminate between different cases, whereas a lawyer was talking about discrimination in the, you know, non-discrimination equality kind of sense. But we don't have that language readily available to all communities who are working on these systems. And so in order to talk about technical requirements in a way that makes sense to legal and policy communities and to talk about human rights considerations in a way that makes sense to engineers is, I think, the big problem, really. And there's so much work happening in this field. I don't want to paint it out to be this field that nobody's working on because a lot of very, very smart people are you know, working on this. But I think the challenge still remains that we are yet to come to a point where we're not talking past each other based on disciplinary training. So that's the first one. I think secondly, you know, this is more to do with the nature of AI systems. Um, when we're thinking of social technical systems, which I believe AI systems in the way that we see them today are, not all social realities and not all historical instances of discrimination and hardship can or should be reduced to mathematical or computational formulations. But when we want to use AI systems in societal contexts, when we want to decide who gets opportunities based on data, when we want to decide you know, how to ascertain whether someone is a good enough loan applicant based on data, we kind of lose a lot of those really important aspects of a person's life because those things are just simply Simply not quantifiable. And so it's also difficult then to reconcile the two because they're two completely different disciplines, which is why some people, including me, believe that machine learning is not an ideal tool in all instances, right? I think that if we wanted the future to look exactly like the past, machine learning would be the tool that we use. But I don't think that that is true in most societies in the world. I'd be hard pressed to find a single one. Machine learning doesn't understand the world in a way that lends itself to social considerations necessarily. And I think that's also important to keep in mind, you know, kind of zoom out a little bit to say, even if we could embed some kinds of social considerations into the technical design of these systems, is that something that we want to do? Thanks so much, Vidushi. And that's such a critical point. Um, I think sometimes there's this idea that because AI systems are technical tools rather than people, they must be impartial and their decision making must be trustworthy. But in fact, they learn insofar as one can apply that term to make decisions about the world based on data that was collected and curated and also created in some ways through human actions. And that reflects a whole wide variety of biases and historical injustices within societies. And I think your comments on the question of fostering conversation between different communities, for instance, the legal and the technical, perhaps also brings us a bit back to this question of informational asymmetries, because when the categories by which decision makers in different technical standards and other tech governance bodies are approaching AI governance questions are not clear to different segments of society, it can be very difficult to make those conversations conversations inclusive and participatory. 
So uh, coming back to that question, what can be done to make it easier for a wider range of groups, a wider representation of society to participate in AI governance? I think the first step would be to stop privileging technical knowledge as the most important piece of expertise to have in a room. Very often when we're thinking about AI solutions to a problem and AI applications, they're an application that will be used on top of years and decades and perhaps even centuries of culture and of realities that people understand in ways that are much more nuanced and much more you know, rigorous than the engineering or legal or policy community. So getting in expertise from, for instance, if we're working on the future of work, right, work with labor unions, work with people who have an expertise in employment, who understand the realities of it on an ongoing basis, I think is the first thing, right? And that was just one example. I think we have so much to learn, for instance, from people who have worked on, you know, community organizing, for instance, I think is a wealth of knowledge that we really need to think of as, if not more important than the fields that we currently prioritize. So that's the first. I think the second is that there's also a responsibility on, on folks who are currently working on AI applications and AI governance to make the conversation less about the jargon and less about the technical terms and more about the actual real world implications of use, right? Um, I think sometimes we do get into the danger of talking about ideal situations and ideal formulations of how technology should exist, but we don't end up talking to people who, you know, actually see how these technologies unfold in everyday life. Um, I can give you an instance where we were trying to study predictive policing in New Delhi and initially my co-author Shivangi Narayanan and I, we said, we're going to somehow get access to the code. We're going to talk to police commissioners and do all of the work. And then we're going to reverse engineer the code and figure out like what kind of biases exist. And we're going to ask them how they correct for fairness and all of these things. And then we actually did the ethnographic research of going to the police headquarters for a year or more, actually, and figuring out that actually, you know, when we're talking about AI in an academic or in a research sense, in the headquarters, they're using Windows 95 computers, right? The people who are using these computers don't necessarily like them. They don't fully understand what is happening, right? So I think also having this understanding of the huge gap between the theory and the practicality of it and bringing in people who have that practical expertise is a really important step to be taken as well. So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Vidushi so much for this conversation. It's just been great. I think it's clear from our discussion that understanding emerging technologies' impact on democracy is only going to grow in the coming term. And it's important that we have an understanding of the best ways to shape norms and rules around this that will be more consistent with human rights and democracy. But before we let you go, I wanted to ask you about your own path to working at the intersection of digital innovation and human rights. How did you find your way into this field? Um, I think I think the human rights piece of the puzzle is something that I always kind of knew that I wanted to do ever since I was like maybe four or five years old. And I think it's because I've always responded quite strongly to instances of injustices. And, you know, having grown up fairly privileged in India, a country with huge economic disparities on one hand, and at the same time being, you know, a 
dusky girl in a society that isn't very nice to dusky people or women in general made that discomfort very much part of like how I see and view the world and what I think is a good use of my time. And the digital rights piece of the puzzle, I think, is something that I stumbled upon in college because at the time that we were asked to pick a subject for our law school dissertation, the government was pushing Aadhaar, which is the largest biometric database in the world, quite aggressively onto people in communities. And at the same time saying things like, you know, there is no fundamental right to privacy in India. So I think those two worlds kind of just collided in a way that I didn't see coming. And I kind of haven't looked back ever since because I started thinking about who gets to determine who has a right to privacy and how does data represent us in a database of a billion people and what impact does it have on our lives? Yeah, so I kind of have just gone down that path ever since. Thanks very much for that. And then finally, although this is perhaps a bit of an unfair question, we do like to leave our listeners with a recommendation. So for the topic of this session, I was wondering if there's one book or article that you might suggest for those who'd like to learn a bit more following up on the themes of today's conversation and about how artificial intelligence is changing our societies. For listeners who aren't necessarily, you know, thinking about AI all day, every day, and are just generally interested in how these technologies impact our lives, I would recommend Xiaowei Wang's Blockchain Chicken Farm. It's a book that kind of explores the political and social realities of tech in rural China. And it's really interesting because usually when people talk about China or they talk about tech, and definitely when they talk about tech in China, there's this tendency to, you know, speak in really broad strokes. And this is a really careful, deliberate kind of meditation almost of what tech looks like in rural China, you know, what we can learn from the realities that Xiaowei saw during their travels in China. So I, I think that's an excellent book. And the second recommendation is for listeners who are kind of already within this world of digital rights and emerging technologies. I think one of the best books I've read in recent years is called Studying Those Who Study Us. And this is a collection of essays by Diana Forsyth, who unfortunately passed away in 1997. But this book is a collection of essays that she wrote, and she was a leading anthropologist on tech and society. And it's kind of amazing because a lot of questions that we grapple with today, you know, when we're thinking about killer robots and super intelligence and bias and discrimination, she was thinking about them almost 30 years ago, right? It explores these fundamental questions in a really interesting and sharp way without the distraction of AI taking over our lives that we have today. So highly recommend that as well. Thank you so much, Vidushi, for this really fascinating conversation. And I hope our listeners will follow up and take the chance to consult those really fascinating sounding resources that you've mentioned. Um, and that's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on these issues, check out our companion blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. You can find additional resources, including our recent report, The Global Struggle Over AI Surveillance, on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. And join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us at Think Democracy. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies at the National Endowment for Democracy. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please leave us five stars and a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, especially producer and sound engineer Rochelle Faust. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll tune in again next time.